0: Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking hi there it is wonderful to be with you today It's really together as a community that we are welcoming Sophie to the podcast Sophie is speaking to us um, from Uganda in the late afternoon and there in Uganda Sophie hosts two things one a food blog titled a kitchen in Uganda and secondly she hosts a podcast titled Our Food Stories. So Sophie's podcast was born after, uh, well, one, as just a natural result of uh, writing her food blog for several years, and to the point where she started to understand what she didn't know and wanted to dig deeper into her own food culture. But it was also born after several conversations with her parents, and these conversations made her realize that her food heritage was under threat by several forces, um, things like technology, modernization, globalization, uh, even religion. She talks about that a little bit, how that's affected her food heritage, and of course, the vestiges of colonization. On top of that, Sophie will explain that Uganda is a country-formed by tribes with somewhat arbitrary borders. And so Sophie's second goal in starting her podcast was to learn more about the food cultures of the different tribes within her own country. So today, Sophie's speaking to us about a lot of things. Of course, the food heritage, she's speaking to these uh, forces, about these forces that are threatening it. She's teaching us some of the things she's already learned on her own podcast. And she also shares some truly idyllic memories of her own childhood, times when her families uh, gathered together in the late evening to pound cassava into flour, times when she sold Kalabagala pancakes, which she's going to teach us all about, to passerbys for just a few cents each. as just a five or six-year-old child. Sophie's voice is beautiful. It's gentle. It's melodic. And I feel like everything that she teaches us, she teaches in that same way, um, just with gentleness and thoughtfulness. And I'm so honored that I got to have this conversation with her and so delighted to introduce her to you today. Before that, very briefly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast right there in your player. If you don't listen to podcasts in a player, no problem. Scroll all the way down to the bottom of the website that you're on and just subscribe to my newsletter. Thank you. And here's Sophie. Hello. Hey, how are you?
1: Hello, Vicky. Can you hear me well? Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. You have okay. such a soft, gentle voice. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Thank you. How are you? I am fine.
0: Yeah, it's about uh, five o'clock there.
1: Right. Right. Okay.
0: So is um, Uganda's pretty equatorial? Is sunset in just a couple hours, two or three hours? Right. It is. It is. Okay. So is it, is it, you know, are the shadows long? Is it soft and golden there? What's it like at the moment?
1: Um, right now, to be honest, it's, it's either raining or it's sunny. So right now, (laughs) as long as it's not raining, it's going to be mostly golden.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Is this, um, Is this a country where there's a summer season and a rainy season? Is it split up that
1: way? Yes. So we do have two seasons. So it rains and then it's sunny. So the rainy season is when it's time to plant food. You know, that's when you get fresh harvest most of the time. So, yeah. Okay. And
0: what is it right now? Which season?
1: (laughs) That's a tough question because, you know, it's... It's not as predictable as it used to be before. Mm-hmm. So it might rain out of the blue. Mm. It might be sunny. So it's really hard to predict.
0: Okay. Although this is- right
1: now, yes. Although right now it is sunny. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: And this is because of climate change?
1: I believe so. I believe it has a part to play in this.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is it? It almost seems like that might be better to mix up the two seasons a little bit more it might be better for growing or maybe not because it's just a new a new way of approaching the seasons
1: um yeah but one thing about us is we always find a way to make things work (laughs) so yeah we do find ways of there are um, plants that do grow in the sunny season Mm. Uh, or they are plants which survive, you know, the harsh summers, not summers, the harsh sunshine. So for mm. example, um, <laughs> the dish is called katago, but the ingredient is cassava. So cassava is really um, known mm. to be a resilient plant and it survives almost every season.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, like you said, everybody's just adjusting to the new weather pattern, finding ways yeah. of making things grow, new dishes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump right into the recipe that you shared. Um, First of all, can you name it so I can refer to it properly, hopefully pronounce it?
1: So the recipe is Kavala Gala, which are also known as Ugandan pancakes. So um, we put the Ugandan pancakes part because usually when majority of the people Generally, when they think of pancakes, they think of American pancakes. Mm. So we Ugandans have to keep telling people, no, we have our own version. And it's <laughs> completely different from what you think. Yeah. Well,
0: tell us, um, let's introduce it kind of in its own right. We won't compare yet. We'll just introduce right. it. It's just All how right. it is. Tell us, like, give us a little bit of a taste for it. What are we going to, um, what's the texture? What's the flavor? What are we going to taste when we bite into Kabbalah Gala?
1: Okay, so gala is, again, a Ugandan pancake, mm. and it's made out of cassava flour mm. and bananas. So the bananas are actually called Kavalagala. So when you oh. ask for Kavalagala bananas, you will get the apple bananas. And I think apple bananas is the English translation. And um, so what we do is we get these bananas when they're ripe, mash mm. them up, mix them with the flour, and then create... Almost palm sized discs, mm-hmm. and then fry them, deep fry them in oil. Mm-hmm. So, because of the texture of the cassava, cassava is usually when it's cooked, it becomes stretchy, almost mm. starchy and stretchy and translucent. So, mm. that mixed with the banana gives you a consistency of, let's say, maybe um, I would compare this to a pudding because mm. it, it's very dense. But it's also really light because it's recommended to be to eat it right after it's fried, you know, like immediately while yes. it's really hot. So it's light and it's dense at the same time. And then it has this rich banana flavor. Yeah. Oh, delicious, delicious, yeah. delicious. So the texture is not
0: uh, American pancakes. They're very uh, fluffy and you can tear them. Right, um, easily. It sounds like this is not the case. Fluffy is not the correct
1: texture. No, it's not fluffy. It's it's light, but it's also very chewy. So okay. I'm I'm comparing this to if you were to cook something with potato starch. Mm-hmm. That's the texture. That's the texture you would get.
0: Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. This potato starch keeps coming up more and more. I've used it to fry. um, It was a Taiwanese dish and it was like a coating to fry with. Um, Mm -hmm. It came up in another recipe, and I feel like I might need to do more research on the properties of potato starch because it seems to be very versatile. Right. But in this case, you're using cassava flour. Is that correct?
1: Yes, cassava flour. So it's different from cassava starch Mm. and um, I think cassava starch. So our cassava flour is usually, and this is from my personal experience. So Mm. we do have the factory made flour, Mm. which is, you know, the commercial flour, which you can go to a shop or a supermarket and buy, but then also people make their own flour. So I grew up where I grew up. We used to make most of our flour where you just, you dry the cassava and then you grind it and then using a sifter you sift the flour until you get a really fine flour so the texture will be different from if you use a processed made flour i mean uh yeah a processed flour and um so it also depends on how you dried the cassava so there are many elements to consider so I might make my Kavala Gala and you might make yours and there will be a slight difference, but Mm -hmm. that's okay because that means the flowers are different. Mm -hmm. And also um, the kind of bananas you're using, Mm -hmm. that means it depends on the level of ripeness. So if it's super ripe, Mm -hmm. it will be more sweeter. Mm -hmm. And if it's less ripe, it will be less sweet. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. Okay. I have lots of follow-up questions here.
1: Okay. <laughs> so <laughs>
0: This is so interesting to me. Um, so let's start with the cassava flower, which obviously, like you said, mine is going to be different because I, I don't have an option but to buy processed. Um, I would love to know more, though, about the cassava plant, the cassava, what, I don't know if you call it a fruit, whatever it is that it bears. Um, right. The cassava and then the process. Um, This is amazing that you did this regularly um, in your home. So really let's take me through that whole process, starting with the plant. Where does it grow? What does it look like? And then so on and so forth.
1: All right. So, um, cassava is, cassava is actually really important. So, um, my ethnic tribe, um, Uganda consists of about over 50, 50 tribes. Mm. So you can imagine the diversity in that. So yes. my ethnic tribe is more on the minority side, mm. and this is because we're not that many. Okay. And, um, so, like, where we are geographically located, the cassava plant is really important in our diet. Okay. So, you will find that we will make um, these pancakes with the cassava. We'll make other, other, um, a variety of ingredients. I mean, a mm-hmm. variety of dishes with this plant. And the good thing about the cassava, and I think that's one of the reasons it was, it has been ad- embraced by mo- majority of the people, is that it, it is very versatile. And mm. it also withstands harsh weathers, just mm. like I said. So you yeah. can plant um, cassava in the dry season and you will still get something to eat. It might not be the best quality,
2: mm. but
1: you will still get something. So that's one. actually one of the reasons it was introduced in the Ugandan diet. Mm. Um, I remember talking to my father and he said, originally we did not eat cassava, but around the 1970s, 1980s, um, there was a lot of drought and famine mm. in the area. Mm-hmm. And so they introduced cassava as a as a long-suffering plant if I may use that word. Yes in that you can plant it and the, the good thing about it is you can plant it, harvest and then leave the tubers. It's a tuba actually. It's oh, not a fruit yeah so it's it's it tumor. grows okay it grows in the ground. So I would pro- I would compare this to a potato where you Mm -hmm. have to pull the plant out to get the tuber. Mm -hmm. So you can harvest a piece, go and cook it, and leave the rest in the ground, and they would still be okay in the ground for however long you would prefer, even up to six months, and you can still go back, collect another piece, and cook. So that's one of the reasons a lot of people really like it and eat it and have it in their diet. I
0: see. So the tuber must be very sprawling. It's very. it goes on and on and you kind of just cut a piece off and then put the remainder in. Is that what I'm picturing? Oh,
1: so, um, the tuba it has, it has, I'm trying to remember my science mm. classes. <laughs> <laughs> so it has actually different tubers. So just oh, like potatoes, okay. it will have different, um, mm-hmm. tubers, but okay. you can just pull off one and more will keep growing or whatever is left will just stay there and it will keep growing either in size and, um, yeah, that's Interesting. it. So Interesting. So it's not just one tuber, there are many. I see.
0: It's kind of
1: like how you would harvest sweet potatoes mm-hmm. and there's a lot of tubers under the ground. Yeah.
0: Mm, I see. I can picture mm-hmm. it. And I think I remember reading a book last year with one of my kids um about the potato famine in Ireland. And sometimes they would even just take um like a, a small portion of a potato and put it back in and it would, it would flourish from there. A similar situation can happen. You can just leave a little bit and it'll keep going.
1: Right. So for cassava, it's the stem. Mm. So to plant, yes. So if you want to plant more, you just break off a mature stem and then insert it partially in the ground. Like it has to be halfway in the ground Mm. and it will start um, sprouting. I think they're called, um buds if mm-hmm. i'm correct i'm yeah. not so sure but it will start sprouting leaves and then that's mm-hmm. how another plant will start yeah
0: okay this is amazing what does it look like above ground what are the leaves look like
1: okay so above ground it's um it's still one long stem mm. and then it breaks out into branches and it has these hmm, how do i compare to? Mm. they're like
0: <laughs> It looks like marijuana leaves. I'm looking.
1: (laughs) Yeah, actually, you're right. You could be right. But they are longer. They are very long. They could be the size of a whole palm and fingers. Oh, depending on the variety. Yes. So some are really long and slender. Some are short and and round, more rounded. Yeah. So um, the leaves can be green.
2: Mm.
1: When they're yellow, that means the plant is infected or it has overgrown or it's like an old plant. And then the small buds, the fresher or the more the younger leaves, are uh-huh. a deeper green or sometimes a maroon red. Yeah,
0: I see. Okay, this is so interesting to me. And this is just in the last fifty years or so that it was introduced. Right, to right. Yes. Interesting, huh? That surprises me. To be honest with you, <laughs> that's so interesting. But okay. it's hmm. it's
1: so. Oh, sorry.
0: You no, said something? No, no, go <laughs> right.
1: ahead. But when when you visit Uganda, if you ever visit Uganda, mm-hmm. it's so much in our diet that you won't even think we never used to have it before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: What what did you use to um, make flour before?
1: So, majority of our flours are made with before the cassava introduction, mm-hmm. it was mostly millet and sorghum. Oh, okay. So, I'm not sure if you've seen millet and the millet we have is different because I have seen millet from the U S and mm-hmm. um, it's different in that they remove the red, the red, the red coating. Mm-hmm. So the millet we have, we remain with the red coating. And so when you grind it, it's almost the color of, um, let me see a deep, almost a deep maroon.
0: Wow. A yes. beautiful color.
1: Yes. So when you cook it, you get something of that similar color.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So then walk us through the process. How long did it take? Um, I, I mean, a, a starchy thing like a cassava tuber to turn that into a flower. That's very difficult. <laughs> that seems like very difficult labor um, to do by hand. It seems like you have to get a lot of moisture out of it. So tell me about that process. How did you go through that? And how long did it take at each stage?
1: Okay, so um, it's actually not that mm. hard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The process, once someone internalizes it, it's not that hard, but it is labor intensive. So this will include harvesting the cassava mm-hmm. and then tilling it. And um, cassava is known to have cyanide. So mm. there are methods that we use to remove that One of those is drying it. So we sun dry it and this can take months depending on the weather. If it's very sunny, it Mm. will take a shorter period. Mm. If it's very rainy, then it will take longer to dry. Mm. And then after drying, so we harvest it, peel it and then cut it into small pieces and then dry it. Mm -hmm. And then after drying it, we grind it. So this is the part where we'll use the local mortar and pestle Mm-hmm. I actually have an episode of The Process on my podcast. Do you? So maybe the listeners would want to listen to that. Mm. Um, so we use a, mo- a mortar. A mortar is, I don't know if you do know a mortar and a peso.
0: Yeah, but it's just handheld. And it sounds right. like you're saying this is almost a communal one, like a, almost yes. the size of a, a butter churn, much bigger.
1: Much bigger, very mm. big. Sometimes two to three people can grind the thing all at once. Wow. And um the peso is usually life size. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's about uh between four to six feet. So wow. yeah, it's really large. So they put all this cassava in. Um, pound it yeah The, the word is pound not grind pound it until it's small bits and then using a sifter sift the fine flour and then repeat the process until it's done so this in my village in my grand my grandparents place was usually a communal activity so The grandchildren, the relatives, the aunties and uncles, everybody would chip in and we would do this for maybe a day or two, depending on how much is there to be Mm. processed into a flour. And then once the flour is processed, we then store it. So that's what we use for various dishes.
0: Mm. So if you spend a day or a day and a half as a community, as a family, how long would that yield of cassava flour last you?
1: It will depend. I can't give an exact, mm. a, an exact number. It will depend. So it will depend on how much was harvested,
2: mm.
1: how much was, um, how much of the tubers were able to dry mm. completely. And then also the number of family members. So mm. majority of the families, especially in the rural areas, have many family members who live communally. So it's not just mother, father, children. You live with um, nieces, nephews, uncles, aunties, grandparents. Mm. So it really depends. Um, sometimes some families will just pound enough for the meal of the day mm. and then do the same tomorrow and the day after. And then others who prefer not to do that every day might mm-hmm. just do everything all at once and then store it in sacks. Yeah. Mm.
0: Which way did your family prefer?
2: A little
1: bit of both, mm. especially when the cassava is fresh, because the test even when it's freshly dried, the test is different, is different compared to oh. when it has been stored for months, years. I see. So some people would prefer the freshly pounded flour mm. over the stored one. Yeah. I see, I see. And when it came to do this activity,
0: I mean did everybody know like at nine o'clock in the morning, every Wednesday, we, how, I mean, how, how did you just kind of show up and whoever was there was there? How, what was the planning for this? Like,
1: Um, so it wasn't really planned. I remember mm. from, from the few memories I have of this is yeah. that it was usually an activity done in the late evening. So at around five o'clock, you know, before, before the sun sets or when the sun starts to set, because that's usually the time dinner is prepared. So at around five, six, sometimes four o'clock, depending on how much you have to do, Mm. um, they will ask the children or whoever is available really to start um, pounding the flour. And then we can switch and take turns helping each other. Someone will pound, another person will be um, sifting, Mm. another person will be making the fire. Yeah, so- it it was a community thing it sounds wonderful i this idea of just
0: showing up and kind of working i mean i think those hours were preparing dinner like everyone here in the us is just exhausted during those hours and
1: right.
0: feel feel lonely and overwhelmed and all of these things and it just Sounds wonderful to have that time of the day to be with other people, to kind of be distracted during the hunger pangs of working right. it together. Your kids, you know, can play together instead of just sitting around and whining mm-hmm. for food or to do screens. It, it sounds like a wonderful solution to a very, um, you know, a time of the day that can be a low point for a lot of people.
1: Right. And actually you reminded me, that was also around the time when people came back from like their daily activities Mm. so it was it was a communal thing in that a lot of people will be working others will be sitting around telling stories Mm. and it would just be this moment of just you know catching up on the day Mm. whatever I was doing I'll be sharing and yeah so you're right it 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 was a moment it was a very precious moment for sure well, yes,
0: yes. And also it expands that, um, again, just like relating to, to my life, you know, sometimes I'll feel like I'll put all this time into preparing dinner. And, you know, by the time you do, there's usually a lot of dishes and then everybody sits down to dinner. And in and, and my family, it's very important that we eat dinner together, but it's a very, it's a very short time. Um, And you kind of catch up. Everybody starts the meal a little grumpy because they're hungry. You catch up. Mm -hmm. And then usually people have things to do for the evening. And sometimes it feels like the amount of time you put in didn't pay off. Um, But there you're putting all that time in as you prepare the meal, not just as you eat the meal, which seems like a much more rewarding. um, And again, like you said, well, just a a more bonding process.
2: Right, right.
0: Wow. And then were the meals afterwards casual that where you would sit and talk for a long time or did people rush off afterwards? What was that like?
1: Oh, so depending on um, the time of the month, sometimes Mm. the moon will be very bright. Mm. So people would opt to eat outside because these are places where electricity is not really that common. So Mm. moonlight, is the light of the night. So sometimes we would eat out depending on how bright the sky is. Mm. And also the weather, if it's dry and um, the moon is really bright and shiny. And then when it's it's more dark, Mm. we would all go inside. And even then we'd all still sit together, eat together. Mm. And actually there's a dish that we make with cassava flour so it's it's similar to a swallow. So a swallow is um how do I compare this? I don't know if you have heard of Nigerian fufu. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So it's similar in that way, but instead of using yam flour, we use cassava flour. Mm. So it's the way formed we... into balls, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So a really large ball, depending on the number of people you're cooking for. Mm. So it can be as large as a tray. Um And on weddings, it's really big, like, because they're cooking for everyone. And the way we eat this is that they put it on one large plate or a tray, and then they will give you bowls for your stew or soup. So we, in order to eat that food, we have to surround this large tray of, of the swallow and then use our bowls and get a piece of the swallow dip it in the stew and then eat it so it is essentially a communal meal okay so you, is, you cannot just eat alone yeah
0: yes this is so i've only ever seen fufu in um, bite-sized portions almost like um like a falafel size you know for for palestinians right, right, or right. this is this idea of creating one huge ball like you're saying it could almost be like a volleyball size or a soccer yes, ball. Yes, even
1: bigger than that sometimes.
0: Oh, that's this <laughs> is so this is so amazing to me. It reminds me of um I I interviewed a Persian guest and they made kofta um mm-hmm. which again I had only ever seen this as a meatball size and she was she was laughing at me she's like no 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 this is not how we make it and the same thing this huge ball that they could sometimes even stuff like an entire chicken inside that's how big oh, wow. they made this Ugh. thing and this is like an engineering feat what you're describing what she described because to get something to hold together yeah. you know when it's
1: that size is very difficult It is actually, um, so one of the things to determine if you're really good at making that, Uh, especially for girls, you know, before you go, before you, uh, you know, when you're ready for marriage, you know, mm -hmm. the age between 20 and maybe 25, Mm -hmm. they'll start telling you, you need to make this food. And if it doesn't come out right, that means you're not ready for marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Wow! So it was always a task. You have to make it right. Wow. In order to prove that. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, for a yeah. large number of people. Yeah. This is called swallows. It is called um akalo oh. and it can be made with you can mix both flours. You can mix um cassava flour and millet or sometimes use cassava flour alone.
0: Okay. So, yeah. Sophie, do you remember how old you were when you figured out how to make this properly?
1: <laughs> um let me see. By 10 years, I was already attempting. Wow! I can I can confidently say that I can maybe make enough to serve maybe four people, uh-huh. although larger than that than my hands, because it's really tedious. There's a lot of mixing yeah. and mingling, and it needs a lot of physical energy. So aside from making, uh, if people are more than four people, I don't think I can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you reached your peak at 10 years old. Well, yeah, because the texture really Like the, I mean, it's almost like making a snowball, like a really good snowball, like the texture, it can't be too dry or too wet for it to stay together and get bigger and And, bigger and bigger.
1: And it has to be stretchy Mm. because it has, you need to be able to mold it. So when you pick it, you mold it into something smaller. Mm. that you use to scoop up the stew or the soup. Mm. So yeah, it's it's very interesting. I remember one day writing on the blog and having a hard time explaining mm-hmm. because I felt like the English was just so limited. It mm-hmm. was so hard for me to put into words mm-hmm. what it actually is. And I feel like it would be much better if a person watched a video of it mm-hmm. instead. Yes,
0: yes. Do you have an episode on your podcast about that, dish?
1: Um. No, not yet. But I do have a few lined up that we'll share more in depth.
0: Okay, good. Well, I will definitely put the one, if you send me the link to the one about cassava flour, I will definitely put that in the links. And then, um, yeah, other people will have access to your podcast. So when this one comes along. All know. right. Yes, that would be wonderful. So back to the Kabbalah Gala, because we went off on this tangent about cassava <laughs> flour. And then forming all these, which was not a tangent. It's the, it's the heart of the conversation. It's what I wanted to do. So um, but back to the Kabbalah gala, which is these Ugandan pancakes made mainly with cassava flour and then apple bananas, which I had never heard of before. Um why are they called apple bananas? Do they have an appleish flavor to them, uh, and how do they compare to more typical banana, like what we just know of as bananas?
2: Okay,
1: um, so I'm going to be honest; I was mm. not aware they were called apple bananas oh. until recently. <laughs> so most of the foods I do know in my local dialect, of course, but. When it comes to, you know, writing the blog, then I have to actually search for these foods and find the equivalent or the translation in English. Mm. So it's only recently that I found out they are called apple bananas. Mm. And this is because they have almost a tangy, a, tangi, a tart, tart taste, yeah, which is... I guess, similar or likened to apples. So the, the less ripe they are, the more tart they are, the more ripe they become, the sweeter they become. I see. So I believe that's the reason they're called apple bananas. But if you go to Uganda and you ask people for apple bananas, most people won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> they just know kawalakara bananas or sweet bananas. Mm. that's what we call them sometimes yes so um this banana they're small they're almost finger sized Mm. some can be larger they're short and stubby Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and um they so we do have a variety of bananas and Mm. just like I said most of these bananas so we have bananas for cooking we have plantain, we have bananas for making juice. We have a variety of bananas, a lot of bananas. And I do know the names in my local dialect, but I have a hard time translating them to English. So, Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> you're going to have to bear with me. So yeah, these bananas, they do grow in. So if a person, let's say a person has a banana plantation, most families usually have a small garden of bananas in their Mm. backyard, especially those families that are not so much in the city, you know, where they have land to farm their stuff, Mm. they do have bananas. So you'll find that a plantation will consist of maybe a tree or two of the green bananas, which are for cooking. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a tree or two of those apple bananas, which are just purely for eating. So when you harvest it, you have to wait it for to ripen Mm -hmm. to be able to eat it. And then- we also have the bananas, which we call bogoya, mm. which are similar. I don't think oh. they're exactly the same, but they are similar to the bananas that are eaten in the West. Mm. And um, we also have those for eating. So there's a lot of varieties like a person can be able to identify which banana they are looking at by just looking at the tree and the leaves Mm. and the way the fruit is shaped even before it ripens. Mm -hmm. right?
0: Yeah. Just the shape of the bunches and things like that. The growing pattern, I guess, of the bunches. I see. I see. Okay. So, but you're fairly confident that I could find the Kabbalagala bananas or the apple bananas in a African um, market.
1: Right. So, I did some research and I found out that if you can't find them in African stores, you can try Indian shops, Mm. like Indian um, food shops Mm -hmm. or Asian food shops, like um, Mm -hmm. Filipino food shops. I hear they carry those a lot
2: Mm. because
1: they also use them in their own um, cooking and they eat them as well. So you can try those places.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking at them. In Google Images, and I have seen these before. Now okay. I can't place where I've seen them, but I I do believe I have. So I'll just look around, and um, yeah, I'll put in the show notes, of course, a link to the recipe, and I will note in there where, if fingers crossed, I find them <laughs> around here. But I am pretty sure I have seen these somewhere. I mean, I've certainly, for the podcast, done my rounds of African, Indian, and Asian grocery stores. So hopefully. Right. Hopefully, yes. Um, You said that the taste and the texture of the um, pancakes depends on the ripeness of the bananas. In your opinion, what's the ideal ripeness of the Kavala Gala bananas?
1: Okay, so the ideal ripeness for the... Actually, one of the things I forgot to mention is Kavala Gala. So in my home, I Mm. remember, we used to make them when the bananas are too ripe to be eaten but you don't want to throw them away so it's almost similar to you know when people make banana bread yes <laughs> to save <laughs> to save the bananas yes hmm. so the more ripe they are the better to be okay. honest
0: okay okay yeah. good so i can get them and let them sit for a couple of days
1: right right okay
0: okay well you gave us this recipe because you have fond memories um I, I, I love this because we're getting such a good view, I think, of the community that you grew up in. We've kind of gotten like this intimate view of what evenings were like, some evenings with your family um, and your community and everything. But then you also, you picked this recipe because you bought them from street vendors and you sold them as street right. vendors, Yeah, right. as a street vendor, which is fascinating to me. So tell me a little bit about this Um this institution or tradition of street food in Africa, is it something that's very common? Is it very organized like the food trucks here in the U S or is it here and there? Did you know the vendors well, or or would they just come to town every once in a while? Tell me all about, um, yeah, the institution of, of street food there.
1: All right. So, um, before I tell you about that, um, I forgot to clarify that I did sell the pancakes, but that was, I think I was about five to six years old. And my mom, I remember she would make the pancakes and then Uh she would say, go sit by the, so we lived by a road. Mm. Well, it's not really a road. It's more of a path really, Mm
2: -hmm. but a
1: lot of people used to use it. So she would say, go sit by the tree at the front of the house. Mm. And then Sell these pancakes, you know, and that was um in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. So I think I was about either five or six. What? I'm not so sure. And I remember at that time, one pancake was about uh, it would go for about fifty shillings, mm. and that was really low compared to now because right now you can buy that same pancake for about five hundred shillings. So. Yes, so you can <laughs> you can see that the money it was mostly like you know you go and make some change or um, we have these pancakes around we have these bananas we've made pancakes we can't eat all of them yeah just go and sell something to keep yourself busy so that's that's how I remember it so I remember I would sit with a bucket and a stool and whoever passed I'll ask them do you want some pancakes and and if they wanted, they would get some. And this is still a tradition today. Even in, in the rural areas, you will pass by homes because mm. there are less shops. So you will pass by homes and you see maybe a small child of about 10 years old sitting by their front, um, front yard selling either those bananas themselves, because yeah. even the bananas are a snack, they're considered a snack. or the pancake itself. Yes. So I just wanted to clarify that part because I wasn't in a big urban city, uh, vending, um, selling the pancakes. It was just something I was doing at home. Yes.
0: Oh, that's totally charming though. And people, (laughs) so I, I did just so people listening know I did, um, a a conversion here from a Ugandan shilling to a United States dollar. So basically when you used to sell them, they were basically about a cent or a cent and a half. And now Mm -hmm. it would be more like um, about uh, 15 cents that, uh, that those are going for. So nothing, like you said, just getting some spare change.
1: Right. And actually to even put it into, um, to give you, the idea of how much Mm. those 50 shillings costs, Mm. they are are not officially discontinued, but people don't even use them anymore.
0: Oh, it's so tiny, people. (laughs) Yeah, they
1: don't use them anymore.
0: Amazing, amazing. And how many people would walk by? And I mean, was it, were they just doing this to humor you or were they really hungry? And this was um, like a, a regular and accepted and typical way of getting food in Uganda is you kind of just figure there's always going to be someone selling it along the road.
1: Yes. Yes. So it's, it's a normal thing in, so in the, in the part where I come from, it is a normal thing. I remember um, I did go back to my village in 2017 Mm -hmm. and um, we were passing by, we were going to the market and there was a child like two children Mm. and they were selling the same pancakes. And I remember that actually brought back memories of me selling them. So we bought some from them. It is a common thing, especially in rural areas, because most people Mm. will, excuse me, most people will walk uh, from, you know, from one point to another point because, Mm. you know, using vehicles, motor vehicles, bikes is almost a luxury. Mm. It's not like in the city where you can, easily Mm. grab a car or a bike or whatever Mm. so people a lot of people would track so either you carry food or you carry money money for food so Mm. if you didn't carry food you'd carry money and you'll be sure you'll be assured that there will be somebody in their front yard selling something they'll sometimes they'll sell um fruits sometimes they'll sell those bananas Sometimes they'll sell those pancakes. Sometimes they'll even have actual food. So it's a normal thing. It's a normal thing where I come from. Amazing, And it wasn't so,
0: you know, I'm thinking here, you know, you save money by bringing your own lunch because it's much more expensive to eat out. But there, it was almost as cheap just to buy the food, especially when you think about the labor that
2: Mm -hmm. you put
0: into making it.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm.
0: Amazing. Now, how about, so that's your experience selling them. Which is super yeah. cute. That's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now also, let me just ask one more question about you selling them. Was this something you would just do on weekends or after school? Um, was your mom home most of the time? Tell me a little bit about your family life. Like when did when did this happen?
1: Okay. So um, around that time, oh my, I don't know. Let, let me, I don't know if my memory will serve me right. Mm-hmm. But around that time, I think I was either in primary one. Mm. If I remember correctly, either that or kindergarten, but the thing is these schools, it, they never really retain students for long. So mm. by 12 o'clock, you would be back home. And so to kind of keep you busy, I remember I had my, I had siblings, you know, my sisters, they were smaller then. So it's either I take care of the child, I watch the child or I go sell this stuff while my mom watches the children. Yeah. So it was, it was a way, I think looking back now, I think it was a way to keep me busy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. I see. I see. At schools were mostly, they were basically half day. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I see. And then how far, how far from your home was your school?
1: the school was, so the kindergarten was quite far. I remember, mm. I remember I used to walk a lot, but now I, now that I look back, maybe it wasn't that far. Maybe I was really tiny, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I
1: remember I really used to trek because, um, it would take, I think somewhere between 20 to 30 minutes to reach the school. Okay. Yes. And then when I moved on to primary one. So primary one would be an equivalent to grid one. Mm. Right. It was nearer; it. It was right. Like you could see it right from the house. So it oh, was wow. much easier. Okay. So when I came back from school, they'll tell me, you know, you can either watch the child who was my younger sister or, you know, find something to do. We mm. always want something to do. Yeah. Mm. And even
0: with that, was there such a was the community such that you could always find someone to be with, or was it more of a, a loner situation, just you and your siblings? Thank you again for tuning into this episode today. I just want to remind you that you can help grow this podcast in several significant ways. First, please leave a five-star rating and review. Second, if you have not already, please subscribe to the podcast right there in a player, or again, if you're not in a player, no problem, just scroll on down and subscribe to the newsletter. I send it every Friday with a link to the episode, that week's storied recipe, and just a little update from me. And finally, the best way you can help me grow this podcast is just forward this episode to a friend or family member that you think would enjoy it thank you thank you thank you all of these things mean so much to me personally and they also mean that i can share more stories like sophie's who we're gonna get back to right now
2: no
1: so the community was very close-knit in that mm. even the people who are buying they knew your parents mm-hmm. they knew so it was it's kind of like living in um in a housing estate or housing scheme or like apartments Mm. and everybody knows everybody. And Mm -hmm. they know that those people make really good pancakes. (laughs) and So people will keep coming if the pancakes are really good. And maybe another family is making something else. Sometimes they will, if for example, passion fruits, we take a lot of passion fruit juice. So Mm. if passion fruits were in season, maybe this family will be making passion fruit juice. So you can always drop by for a glass. Mm. It was just, Something, it was something normal to like for a person to be selling something and for Mm -hmm. you to go and get something Mm -hmm. if you want to. Sometimes it was also a way for like the adults or the elders to kind of catch up with each other. So, like, maybe a person will come by, get a pack of like five pancakes, Mm -hmm. and then have a chat with your mom or with you, ask you how you're doing, how are your parents doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. All just very, um, Casual, nothing hurried about it. Right,
1: right, right. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, how about the people that you bought these from? Was that also just something casual like this?
1: Right. So, um... So because we grew up making pancakes in Mm. the house a lot, it's only in my adult life that I started to buy pancakes Ah. uh, (laughs) from the street. So that's when I started buying them from like street vendors within the Kampala city. Mm. Sometimes I would buy them because I didn't have breakfast and I needed to run errands. Mm. And, you know, it it was a busy day. So it was a way for me to kind of like, you know, keep my stomach. Mm-hmm. Full until I find an actual meal to eat. Mm-hmm. And in Kampala, which is the capital city, mm-hmm. you will find vendors almost anywhere carrying the pancakes in a basket, a woven basket, with covered in banana leaves. So that's how you will know that they're actually carrying pancakes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Yes, yes. It's like what they say in the ph- um food photography: like tell the story with your um, as you style it, right right, <laughs> they had banana leaves over, so you knew what was inside. that's yeah. great, that's great That's. it's great. also
1: common to give you the pancakes in banana leaves. Mm. you just wrap them in banana leaves and give them to you. so that's why i when I was trying to photograph it, I made sure that the banana leaf element was in there
0: was yes, very obvious, okay, yeah. so my one last question about making them is um how what size like what would the diameter? B.
1: Okay, so again, it's really it's not like the recipe is not written in stone, so you can yes. really freestyle it however you want. Yeah. Um it depending on how well you are at making these, mm. you can make them larger. So, cassava mm. flour is very hard to work with mm-hmm. because it does not hold like let's say wheat flour. Mm. So, it breaks apart because it's mostly starch Mm -hmm. it breaks apart before it's cooked so to make those discs you have to use a surface where you can easily get them from the surface and put them in the oil to fry so the larger it is the harder it becomes to get it from the surface so if you're starting out i would recommend making smaller ones so maybe Mm -hmm. like um maybe a child size palm? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> Mine will be very small.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then as you become better and better at it, you can increase the diameter of the pancake.
0: Okay. I see. That sounds good. Yeah. And then also for people listening who want to try this recipe, um, you have provided a video. For people to watch how to make it. So I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. So people can All go right. to your website, A Kitchen in Uganda, and watch the video, um, which I will be watching multiple times before I <laughs> make my, no no my attempt. So thank you for that. So um, okay, so moving past the pancakes a little bit. Tell me if I am completely wrong on this, but I think I have followed you for about three years now. And um I have been wanting to have you on the podcast for almost all of that time, and it is proving just as delightful as I had hoped. So thank you. Um, but in, am I wrong? I thought you lived in Europe when I first reached out to you.
2: Oh, right.
1: No. So um... <laughs> I'm totally wrong. <laughs> yes. Okay. All <laughs> right. So, not um... the first time, not the last. <laughs> um. I wonder what gave the impression, though. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm i curious. Um, Well, maybe, tell me if I'm wrong about this. I
0: think at the time you were making quite a few political statements about the stance that maybe Europeans were taking on things. And it just gave, am I wrong on that?
1: No, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Okay, it's
0: I'm a, right about yeah, that. So I yeah. think that probably I just kind of assumed you were responding to things that were happening Um like where, where you were living, but of course you were responding to the impact they were having on you there in Uganda, I suppose. Right. Right.
1: Okay. Yes. So no, I was not living in Europe, but I wanted to touch on the point of the impact. Mm. So I think one thing people do not know majority of the people, especially people outside. And I can only speak for my country because that's where I've been Mm. outside of the country is they think majority of the people think some of these incidents are isolated mm-hmm. but in reality there's a lot of um, there's a lot of European or let me say western influence
2: mm-hmm.
1: in our country and you can even see it in the food we eat mm-hmm. so for me to <laughs> to write um, those uh, to kind of touch on that topic was kind of a way for me to have a discussion with even my fellow Ugandans, you know, like,
2: Mm. why
1: do we do what we do? Like, are we influenced by certain forces? So for example, um, when it comes to food, Mm -hmm. you realize that if you, if you are a visitor or let's say a tourist, Mm -hmm. and you visit um, Kampala, the capital city, chances Mm -hmm. are you will not, you will not feel homesick because, most of the food let's say the fast food joints we do have those <laughs> mm. we have um restaurants specializing in italian cuisine um japanese cuisine we have all of that stuff and usually that's an indicator for our for a regular ugandan to be able to afford those those um foods those restaurants to, to afford to go to those restaurants will indicate that you have you are you have climbed the social ladder if i may and mm-hmm. you know you are at a position where you can afford to have these foods because they are considered exotic foods in our country. Mm. So I kind of wanted us to have the conversation on how, Yeah, the UK might be far away from us, but it influences a lot of what we do. Um, Our school system is still modeled after their school system, Mm -hmm. their um, colonial school system, although they themselves no longer do that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things. Yeah. And I felt like I did have this platform. So Mm -hmm. it was a way for me to kind of like initiate the conversation about some of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. I see. I see. So um, this is also why you started
1: your podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So... I don't know if you can hear that. There's a really loud car passing by. I can hear
0: it in the background a little bit, and I could hear the dogs <laughs> earlier, but it's fine. It just gives us a little bit of a flavor of where you are. I have I have a okay. no problem with okay. background noise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want background noise from my end, <laughs> but as, <laughs> if I get it from the guests' end, I feel like it just, like I said, enhances the flavor of um okay. of, of the life that you're experiencing. We you get it all right.
1: Mm. All right. So we were talking about the podcast. Right. Mm. So um, so I think my my blogging journey has been unique in that when I started, to be honest, it was more of a hobby. Like I did not expect it to get where it has gotten. Mm. And and so um, the more I blogged, you know, the more I wrote about these things, the more I found out about stuff, the more I realized that this is bigger than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just one person writing about my experiences. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I'm not going to be able to represent a whole country. Mm. And, because,
0: and okay. your blog was focusing on the your food experiences.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because, and I remember um, even writing that it was named a kitchen in Uganda mm-hmm. for a reason, because it is just one of many. Mm-hmm. It's not the kitchen,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: So, So um, as time progressed and as I became more informed, you know, Mm -hmm. I really had this desire to to get to learn from other people within the country and their food. So the thing is, just like how they say that Europe um, influences, or rather the UK, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they colonized us. Mm -hmm. Um, They influence a lot of what we do is that we are very, we identify more as we identify more with our tribes Mm -hmm. as compared to the country. Mm -hmm. So it's much easier for a person to say, I am from this tribe than I am from Uganda because Mm -hmm. Uganda, like I said, it's a mixture of it's, it's like a compilation of different tribes, ethnic tribes and Mm -hmm. the regions. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I might be Ugandan and I meet a fellow Ugandan. Maybe I'll be, Maybe I'll be, I don't know, in the US and I meet a fellow Ugandan and we won't be able to understand each other because mm. they come from a completely different ethnic group. They mm-hmm. speak a different language. Their traditions and customs are different. Mm. So And religions one, as well. Yes. Yes. So one thing I wanted to kind of answer or tackle in this podcast was to learn more about, you know, these ethnic regions within mm-hmm. the country, because like I say, the education system is heavily Europeanized, mm-hmm. European. I don't know if that's a word, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Heavily, you really
0: mean, you really mean ang- Anglified, right? Anglified is Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the uh-huh. word.
1: Yeah. So much so that they will teach us about the US, um, the UK, um, <laughs> Canada. Um, I keep making these jokes mm. with my, because my mom, my mom tells us that she learned about the Canadian prairies Mm. in high school. My sister, the same thing. She learned about Canadian prairies and then she was complaining and she's like, I'll never even go to Canada. How do I know these things? So that's, that's and how, yet you um, didn't
0: know about maybe a, a region or a people group within your own right, country. Right, This is interesting. So mm. This is a
1: thing that most of us really face. It's like, we know mm. all about these things. And I feel like it has even been um, mm. heightened by the internet where mm-hmm. we're able, and, and the media generally, you know, like we consume content from, let's say America, Canada, the UK, mm-hmm. and we know almost everything. Like I can tell you, the capital city of Tennessee and all Mm. of these things, but I do not know my own region. And this is because they are not even taught. And so I wanted to be able to kind of, through the podcast, through Food Stories, I wanted to be able to, for myself to learn, because I don't know these things too. (laughs) Yes, But I am sure there are a lot of Ugandans too who don't know these things and they would like to know. Mm. So Mm. I thought telling stories of food would be a good medium to kind of do that.
0: This is amazing. Yeah. And I'm finding, you know, there's a lot of overlap, of course, in what Mm -hmm. we do, because um, I'm driven by my curiosity and just wanted to know about other people's lives, cultures, experiences and food, religions and Mm -hmm. food um, histories, you know, food opens the door to all of these conversations and all of these discussions, but I'm finding that what you do is much more noble and almost like there's an existential threat to your own culture, right? Like it could just go away if you are more and more thoroughly, um, Westernized. So mine is out of curiosity and also because I think there's so many of us, uh, in in my audience who wants, who's, who's equally curious. Like, I think that there is a real, um, yeah, like you said, it's a platform for me to elevate voices that I might not hear otherwise. Um, Mm -hmm. and I want to do that, but I think that your goal is more, um, it's more intimate and it's more noble because it really is to preserve something that might otherwise go away.
1: Right, right, mm. and and you've actually touched an important point: preserving something that might go away. So, mm. um, you know, with with this modernization mm. comes a lot of comes with a lot of um challenges. So, for example, um, my family, me myself, I'm able to remember some of these stories because of my experiences with my grandparents and my parents. But the more, let's say, the more educated and the more urbanized. I become the farther away I am from some of these sources of information. So mm-hmm. I remember um, in December of 2020, yes, December of 2020, I sat down with my dad and I asked him, you know, I want to know. So he actually, he's the one who even told me that before, before cassava, mm-hmm. as we know it, mm-hmm. Because yeah. I, I told him that's interesting that cassava is our traditional food, and then he said it actually wasn't always mm-hmm. the traditional food. And so he mm-hmm. gave me this long, winding history of how the food was introduced, mm-hmm. how people were resistant to it at first, and how people slowly came to embrace it and find ways to kind of make it work. Mm-hmm. So I was like, How come we don't know these things? Um, if you find an average Ghana uh, city dweller, most especially, they'll tell you maybe two to three. Oh, they'll just name you know the popular dishes, but mm-hmm. beyond that, we can't really you know name the plants, um the types of let's say that the types of plants that used to be that were that were eaten then and all these other things. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, oh my, so if I do have children, they probably won't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's
2: like
1: it's like the more the generation grows and progresses, mm-hmm. the the more the information is lost. So it mm-hmm. was really. And I feel like at the core of this, I was doing this for myself because I told myself, Mm -hmm. even if no one listens to this podcast, this is a podcast I will really want to listen to because Mm -hmm. I find it's missing in the podcast sphere. Mm -hmm. So the fact that a lot of people resonated with it is really amazing because it means we are facing the same challenges Mm -hmm. and we're probably thinking alike. And I know it won't be a solution, but. I believe it can help mm-hmm. in preserving the integrity of the food that is the food that kind of defines us. Yes,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because, um, a lot of my, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, a lot of my guests come on and they say they wanted to share a different recipe than the one they gave me, but they weren't able to because the person who used to make it make it for them, um, passed on without, without ever sharing the recipe or without them learning to do it. And a lot of times that has to do with like an, um, like an immigration situation. Like a lot of my guests have immigrated, but you're saying even right there within your own country, where everyone, you go back, of course, generations and generations, like your ancestors are Ugandan. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm assuming there is still a threat to these recipes and um, and the wisdom, I think that comes along with the use of um, some uh, produce and crops and things like that. There's a threat to it because of right. modernization, that is um, so true. which is so interesting to me. Uh, I think of the threat as otherwise, but it's a multi pronged threat. I think is what you're saying, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And I have seen firsthand a lot of grief that people feel when they lose. Um, that connection to their, to their line.
1: Right. They do. And Mm. again, this is something I never expected to even venture into Mm. because you know, when you're younger, you're like, yeah, those are old people things. Mm,
0: but you are <laughs> but, younger. <laughs> <laughs> when I was younger if than you, <laughs> if, if in the 2000s you were 5 or 6. You are younger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I I feel like the older I have grown, mm. the more I have started to appreciate um these traditional values mm. and not in a way that is because some Sometimes people will say, oh, you you want to preserve the traditional values. Do you want to take us back to the oppressive days? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's my intention. That is not my intention. I think mm-hmm. it's it's important to kind of know where you came from, mm-hmm. even though you don't practice, to kind of be aware, like they used to do these things this way. I may choose to do them that way or not, but Mm. to just have that knowledge, I think is really important. Mm.
2: Yeah.
0: And it sounds like, maybe I'm wrong, it sounds like some of the things you're seeking out actually um, are precursors to the colonization days.
1: Right, right, right. And that's the thing. There's little um, information available For that, so even if I do go out and look for these stories, majority of them have been erased either by again, modernization and religion. So mm. it's really tough <laughs> because mm. I remember I had a chat with my mom recently and she was telling me all of these things, like the things they used to do. But when she told them, I could sense that she was she was feeling uncomfortable mm. because she kept on saying, but those were the things of the past. We now have religion. We are saved. And so I feel like religion played a huge role in that.
0: Mm, tell me a little bit more about that like can you give me a specific or
1: right so i was asking her Mm. um what food did did you use to eat Mm. because because she she used to tell me these stories about her dad how he used to hunt
2: Mm. and
1: um and how they never really used to eat meat Mm. as much as people do eat meat these days so in the in the city particularly in the city people consume more meat so for example you will find that it's a daily thing like meat features in the diet daily Mm, mm. compared to people who live in the rural areas or the areas where there's less um convenience Mm -hmm. so she was telling me that you know we never really used to eat meat that much (laughs) and then I was like really why and then she's like you know because my dad was a hunter and Mm -hmm. you know going to hunt um requires a lot of practice and skilling Mm -hmm. so of course it's gonna take time for you to be really good at what you're doing and even when he hunts the animal whatever animal he has hunted um it the process of yes of of preparing it yeah to cook is really long yeah and it takes it takes long Mm. that by the time you eat you probably will have a meal that consists of meat maybe once or twice in a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And even people who had their own, own animals at home, mm-hmm. raising the animals themselves. So like chickens, an mm-hmm. ideal chicken, would have been raised for a year and a for a year, for between a year and a year and a half mm-hmm. to be fit for consumption. So within that period, you really, you don't have um, chances to eat meat daily mm-hmm. so she was telling me this thing she was telling me he's a hunter then I was asking her please tell me more about the hunting part because yeah. I did not know that mm. and then she's like oh no you know those were things and I feel like she was she was a bit shy if mm. I may because some of the Animals that he was hunting then were not approved by the religion that we have now. Oh, so that I was see. why she was feeling a bit uncomfortable because she thought I, I should set a good example for my children. But oh. I was I was trying to I was trying to engage her outside of religion. Mm. But you could tell that she was feeling uncomfortable. So it mm. made me think religion must have played a huge role in suppressing some of these um mm. stories. Because if this is how she feels, then that means. And if this is how she feels and she didn't tell me until I was like almost 30, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that means if I didn't know, I would not have passed on this knowledge to my kids or something like that. Right.
0: Right. I see. I see exactly what you mean. Okay. Um, So the British would have brought mainly the Christian. I'm going to use that in quotes because there's... (laughs) I, I mean, many people would say some of the actions of the British were exactly opposite of Christian, right? So, you know what I mean. Right. <laughs> but they would say that they brought the Christian religion. I'm thinking you're referring to the Muslim religion when you talk about the um, the distinction between foods as clean and unclean.
1: Oh, okay. So, I am referring um, to the Christian religion. We are you Christians. Are. Yeah. Oh, and, yes. and your, your Christian religion
0: limit certain foods.
1: Yes. Yes. Some, oh. there's, there's some stuff we can't eat. So for example, I, I cannot consume pork because of oh. that. Oh, and, and because I grew up not knowing how, like it was something that was never discussed. So even, oh. even now I don't really consider it as something I have to eat because it's just, I've never, it's yeah.
0: This is so interesting to me. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm a Christian and we've never now, of course I've seen in the old Testament, but that's certainly not like th- This is what I mean when we start talking about religions, like these global religions is the different right. versions of them are so different. Um, right. this is so interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, so we'll move on past that because I know it can quickly become um, political, right. um, <laughs> but I, I really I really appreciate that. And do you think um, you told the story of when your dad explained that cassava flour was such a recent, um, was introduced so recently really to um, Uganda, that that was kind of like this watershed moment for you. You say on your blog that you explore the intersection between food and identity. Do you think that was... That was the moment when you realized there's such a close connection there, or do you think there were um, other moments? Um, When do you think you started to realize that?
1: So I feel like it came um, gradually. I can't pinpoint a Mm. single moment, it came gradually. Also, it came from (laughs) you know how I said that um, Ugandans are very, we're very, um, I wouldn't say tribalistic because Mm. that's negatively Mm, Uh, we we are very we identify more with our ethnic tribes Mm -hmm. yes Yes. so because of that it will be hard for me one of the things I the challenges I had was for me as a person of a different tribe trying to make a meal Mm. (laughs) or a dish of another tribe Mm. so this it's not written but it's this unspoken rule of how can you know how to make this food if you're not from this tribe? Right. So I always felt like I was, I was navigating that with the blog. So mm. there's some foods that I have not even touched. I have not even talked about because I feel I do not have the authority to do so. They are yeah. foods. They are foods I eat. I make them in the house. Mm. We eat them. But I feel like to write about them on the blog is almost. Doing a disservice to mm. the dish because I feel like I don't have the mm-hmm. range mm-hmm. or the experience or the mm-hmm. expertise to be able to write about that food. Mm.
0: And yes. a little bit, you know, if you do it wrong, the hammer is going to come down quickly. Yes,
1: mm. yes, <laughs> yes. Like how how is this girl? <laughs> yes, <laughs> from the west of Uganda, teaching yes. people how to make this food. Yeah. I was always fearful of that. So that's mm. actually one of the reasons. Again, like I said, it was something gradual. Mm. So like that experience coupled with all these stories my parents, like all these stories mm. I was extracting from my parents mm. um, made me realize that this is something bigger than me. Okay. And in order to do it justice, I think there should be a platform, an open f- platform for people to tell their stories Mm. so again that's how the podcast started so in the podcast i don't even center myself i just do the intro and the outro and i just let the person take over because they are telling their story yeah 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 oh wonderful Uh, yeah that's
0: yeah such a um it's such a gift to your guests and your listeners as well right Mm. um when we talk about this um I I'm, I I'm meant I want I wanted to ask this earlier. Um, you you say that you know Ugandans really identify more by their tribe than right. by being Ugandan. Right. Um, just as a history lesson for us, how were the borders of Uganda drawn, and why were you know what I mean? Yeah. How did right, that happen?
1: Right. Um. Hmm. Let me see this Is a tough one. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I remember my geography lessons. But the um so the exact reason why they were drawn, I think we'll have to go deep into, you know, like how it was started as a country and how the British people came and
0: so it started- really had to do with colonization. Yes, yes oh, okay. taking
1: some territories. So um, for example one of the reasons they would claim some territories was because of the natural resources in those territories so if they knew that this place has a lot of let's say gold mm-hmm. then they'll say yeah maybe we should claim this too so it's there's a lot of reasons and i don't think i i don't think mm-hmm. i can get into them right now but mm-hmm. i think one best way um, i can recommend is reading the history or the making of the country
2: mm-hmm yes
0: mm-hmm. I yes. see I see so yeah before um Central Africa was colonized it was a collection of tribes right, um there right. wasn't even the concept or the construct of mm-hmm. a country because you existed within your tribe and then maybe you would trade or visit or intermarry right. with other tribes but that was really the um that was the main building block of right I see mm-hmm Yes,
1: because even the country itself was named after a tribe, and mm. that was the tribe which currently its territory was, which what is currently the capital city. Mm. So, I when see. um the British came, mm. they kind of set their headquarters there. So it it by default became the capital city. So, the the tribe is called Buganda. Mm. So it's like Uganda, but with a B. Mm. So that's where the country, actually, the country's name comes from. So that is in the central. So you find that that tribe is situated in the central. So as you go towards the east, you find another tribe. You go towards the north, more tribes, the west, more tribes. So it's it's really more of tribes than a country. So when Mm -hmm. I'm in the country, I don't think of myself as... Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I, I, I understand. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's I just two weeks ago I had um, a guest on who she she is Pakistani, but she really like you identifies with her tribe, which is the Pashtun right. tribe, and that tribe crosses over from Pakistan and um, Afghanistan, and mm-hmm. so uh, it, there's more I could go into there, but yes, I think that this is not an un common thing. And for you probably also as a Ugandan, you might identify more, um, with a neighbor, you know, a neighboring country who comes from the same tribe. Um, right. Actually
1: you're right. So, Mm. um, my tribe is situated towards the Western border. Mm. So you'll find that no, not the Western border. Wait, hold on. Oh my God. Mm. Yes, the Western border. <laughs> okay. I lost my mind for a bit. Right, yeah. so um, the Western border, so that borders with Eastern Congo. So you'll find that if I find a Congolese person from that region, we can speak the same language.
2: Mm.
1: Um, but we're from different countries, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And same goes for the Eastern border of the country. Mm-hmm. They border Western Kenya. So you'll find that people in Kenya from that region and people in Uganda from the Eastern region can understand each other so mm-hmm. it's really like that same goes for the north
2: mm-hmm.
1: um even the south yeah yeah it's it's
0: uh it's a sad thing i think to listen to um to understand the depth to which colonization um i guess infiltrated right uh that you even live in a country that you don't necessarily even identify with. This is a very, um, this is a very deep thing.
1: Right. Yeah, it is. And it's, Mm. it's, it's a very hard topic to discuss because Mm. it brings back a lot of old wounds for Mm. most people. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I see.
1: So as you've
0: worked for the blog or just as you've lived your life, or as you've, um, you know, pursued the podcast, have you traveled to different regions and what have you learned about the different, um, landscapes, geographies, um, and food ways?
1: Right. So, Mm. um, I am originally from the West, um, Mm. the Western border of the country. Mm -hmm. And I have I like to think that I've been around. <laughs> mm. um, so I, most of my family or my immediate family lives in the central. And again, there's a reason for this, but again, it's, it's such a wide topic to discuss. Mm. So, you know, so I'll just give you um, a small example. So, you know, um, as, as a person gets more educated mm. and, you know, they're trying to pursue, um, a better life for themselves, Mm -hmm. you'll find that they will move to the central region Mm -hmm. where the capital city is situated. Mm -hmm. And so this means that in order to to assimilate almost, if that's Mm -hmm. the right word, to this region, you know, and find opportunities, you have to learn the language of the central. So you'll find that majority of Ugandans speak mm-hmm. more than one language so mm-hmm. i will speak my local dialect i will speak the language in the central region which is luganda from mm-hmm. the uganda tribe mm-hmm. and then i will also speak english because english is the official language because we're so many and we have different languages we don't really understand each other so english is the official language so majority of ugandans are really multilingual
2: wow
1: in that they speak more than one or two languages so sense. um My parents moved to the central when I was young. I think I was around seven or eight, Mm -hmm. somewhere around Mm -hmm. that time, yes. So we've been living there ever since. Mm -hmm. And um, you can obviously see the differences between the regions. So where I come from, it's very mountainous Mm -hmm. in that (laughs) we have to climb the mountains. Um, There's a lot of rivers and lakes. Um, And so the food that grows there is different from the food that will grow in the central. But also we have to consider the the urbanization or, you know, where people don't even grow food anymore. You just buy it from the market. Right. So yeah, in the central. So you'll find that most people in the central will find their food in the markets or the small stalls in smaller towns. Mm -hmm. And then people from where I come from, depending on whether you live near a town, you might buy your food in the town Mm-hmm. or you might farm your own food if you can mm-hmm. so yeah and I had a chance to visit the northern region but I was a child mm. and I don't really remember much but I mm. remember them having a lot of onion no not onions oranges oh. So a lot of the country's oranges come from the northern region because mm. the land is really good for farming mm. oranges
2: mm-hmm. and
1: then also they have um So we call it sim sim, but Mm. that would be sesame. So Mm. the region in the north, that is a a primary ingredient in their dishes. So they import, not import, (laughs) they transport a lot of um, sim sim. I see to the central region. So you can always be sure that this sim, sim is coming from the North and it's really great because the way we eat it is we grind it into a paste mm. and, um, and then that paste is used in thickening soups or adding flavor to soups. So you find that a person will have a stew of um, sim sim and smoked fish or maybe sim, sim and meat or sometimes sim, sim and dried vegetables. And it's really nice. And then in the central the substitute for SimSim Sim would be peanuts, mm. which we call ground nuts. Oh. <laughs> they, come, they come from the ground. <laughs>
0: okay. Right. Um, ground, not like grinding in a mill. Right. I see. Right.
1: Right. We we'll also grind them. <laughs> oh, it's, 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 a... it's it's so funny. We also grind them and then we, we <clears throat> excuse me, the consistency is almost almost similar to peanut butter paste but peanut mm. butter is very smooth this mm. one is a bit more coarse mm. because it's going to dissolve in a stew so mm. yeah you'll find a lot of groundnut, sim sim based uh, stews in the mm. central and also in the northern region and then things like potatoes grow in the highlands so highlands are mostly the mountain areas which are the borders okay. of the west and the east mm-hmm. so you find a lot of those there and then we also eat a lot of seed potatoes um, yeah. and seed potatoes majority of the seed potatoes come from the eastern region because the tribes in the east have that as a primary ingredient in their dishes as well so I it's see. like it's really interesting because whichever region you're going to you notice a diet change based on the climate you, the food right. that is grown and then the culture is built around that. Well, and
0: then also, um, even though Uganda is landlocked, there are Mm -hmm. quite a few major, major waterways um, in the middle, on the west, on the southeast. So is seafood also? uh, I I mean, just I'm assuming that fish and other seafood grows in these or no
1: yes yes so ugandans we really love our fish uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like uh, there's some people i know who can't go away without having fish yeah fish features heavily in our diet because of the lake the lake victoria mm. um the river nile mm. so we have a lot of sources of fish and was that the nile fish. river yes
0: oh i'm looking at the map right now that's what that is right there in the middle. Oh, I'm looking at um Lake
1: Kyoga? Oh, yes, Lake Kyoga, yes. <laughs>
0: That's a massive massive lake in the middle and then um
1: right. a lot of lakes and streams and rivers.
0: Okay. Yeah, many, yeah. many, many and they're all mm-hmm. they're all fresh water, I assume. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this is amazing that you've had the opportunity to learn so much and to preserve so much. Like I said, I'm really struck by what a gift it is to your listeners, um, to your guests, to give them the opportunity to share these things and to research for themselves. And then also for your listeners um, to remember these ways and to explore um, not only their food, but also some of these topics that, like you said, are painful but right. still momentous um in the present.
1: Right,
2: right. Mm.
1: Mm. Yes.
0: Well, I really you've given me more than an hour. So thank you very <laughs> much for your patience with me. I've learned so much. Um and I, I really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. It was it was great talking about it. Mm. Yeah. I'm,
0: I'm glad. Is there anything you've wanted to say or anything that's on your heart to say that you didn't get a chance to?
1: Right. So I had written down some notes myself. Yeah. Um, so there's one thing I forgot, which is, um, our, so we do have, you know, like how I mentioned that there's a lot of tribes, a lot of influences. Mm. And on top of that, we do have, um, you know indian influences so oh, if you were to visit the country <laughs> yeah you will notice a lot of indian elements so we spice our food like indian mm. people almost mm. although over the years we have kind of um calibrated them to fit our tastes oh what does that mean <laughs> <laughs> right so um again this goes back to the british so um around the the late 1800s mm. and early 1900s they brought in a lot of Indians from the Indian subcontinent yes. to kind of like help with infrastructure, you know, since they had discovered all of these minerals, they needed a way to transport them from this landlocked country to the coast,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: is, you know, where Kenya is. Mm-hmm. So they built this massive railway. So if these people came, um, they... They set their roots there in in the country. I a lot see. of them um, assimilated, you know, and they blended with the natives almost, although not quite, because,
2: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> yeah, not, not all of them did. So you will yeah. find that their influences, the food they came with, some of us have retained it. It has been retained over the years. So yes. you will find that we spice our food like Indians. We use a lot of curry powder mm. and, um, We'll eat foods like samosas, chapatis, um, foods like pilau. Yeah. So, yeah. So because people, ask some people, some especially people who are not aware of the East African history, they'll ask me, why do you guys, why does your food look Indian-ish? And we have to explain this. So that is one of the reasons why. And even their dressing, you'll find that sometimes our clothes imitate almost all oh, look similar to
0: theirs. Yeah. I see. This is very, very interesting. And I knew that to be true of Kenya, um, but I didn't know about Uganda. And like you said, it all goes back to those natural resources and exploiting those and getting those out and bringing Mm -hmm. people in to make that happen. So this is very interesting to me. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. Is there anything else that you wanted to tell us?
1: No, I I would encourage people to listen to the podcast or if they have Ugandan friends who would be interested in listening to the podcast, I think that would be amazing
0: absolutely yes and everyone will be able to and i think that you know for non-ugandans it's good for us as well because there's so much of this history like this is global history at this point that um everyone has to grapple with i think and uh and then also just out of sheer curiosity like it's fascinating to me to learn about um approaches to food and flavor and agriculture and so i think um I think it's a wonderful thing you're doing, and I'm I'm happy that we have the opportunity to listen to it. And yes, for anyone listening right now, um, links to your podcast and, and your website are definitely in the show notes, for sure. Thank you. Yes. And also how to contact you also.
1: Uh, that would be great.
0: Yes. Um. So they can find those there, but just so you can say it verbally so people can remember where can they find you so everyone knows.
1: Okay. Um. So I can be found on mostly active on Instagram mm. and it's at a kitchen in Uganda. And then you can find the blog at a kitchen in mm. And then the podcast is also called our food stories podcast. So Mm -hmm. it's available on Apple, Google, um, Spotify, Stitcher, and YouTube as well.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sophie. I really hope you have a wonderful evening.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Take care. All right. You too. Okay. Bye.
0: Thank you again for tuning in, my friends. I am always happy to receive your feedback. Feel free to email me at becky at com. Again, please subscribe right there in your player, five-star rating or review, and forward this podcast to a friend or family member. Any one of those three things would be a huge, huge help. Thank you, and have a great week, my friends.